Thank you all very much for joining us today at the Oxford Political Review. I'm Brian Wong, the Editor-in-Chief, and we're incredibly, incredibly honoured to be joined by the one and only Professor Slavoj Žižek. Uh, Professor is a renowned philosopher and amongst the most established theorists in the world today. I see you shaking your head, but it is genuinely our honour and pleasure to have you here. So, with all that It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure to be with you. Although I must say I am undecided in this eternal struggle, Oxford-Cambridge, you know. Well, I think Oxford's the analytic school, whereas Cambridge is a historical school. So I suppose that's the difference between the two of us. But I think that's a superficial distinction anyway. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but but let, let's start with just <laughs> an interesting question about the US elections. I want to talk about Trump and the mess that's happened or gone down yesterday. Now, in a 2019 op-ed for The Independent, Professor, you wrote that the fear that a Trump victory would turn the US into a fascist state is ridiculous exaggeration. And you offered two arguments in support of this. The first is that the US had robust institutions and checks and balances to keep the president in check. And the second one is that the Trump victory triggered a process of radicalization that would galvanize the left and eventually fuel them and give them more energy and ammunition to fight the capitalistic structures. Mm. However, on the first, Trump's presidency seems to have continually eroded these very institutions and furthermore are continually eroding them as we speak right now. Whereas on the second, the prophesized blue wave hasn't materialized. And if anything, America's backslide into authoritarianism seems to have only accelerated as opposed to uh, decelerated. What would you say to this statement? Do you think I'm making a doomsday scenario prophecy here? No, I... I, uh... At one point, I do disagree with myself a couple of years ago. I think, and many of my friends disagree with it, that, to put it in one sentence, no Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez without Trump. I think that this is part of the same process, the rise of the two of them, which I call, unfortunately, I'm not just glad about it. The disintegration, gradual disappearance of what we could have called liberal center. The way Trump is talking, it's typical. And I don't think this is just a falsity. Of course, it's false. It's crazy. But it has a political truth in it. Because you know what's the paradox of truth? That wrong state... Ideology, politics is a material force. Even if you say something that is obviously a total lie, this lie gets materialized in practices, in political positions. And uh, stop me if I'm too long. But what I want to say is that in the same way as in Stalinism, where everybody who opposed Stalin, they didn't recognize any democratic socialist opposition. You were a collaborator of Nazis, of British spy service, whatever. It's the same with Trump. I noticed carefully that Melania Trump designated uh, Biden as a socialist. He says mm-hmm. socialist. Then what about Kamala Harris? Trump said it's even worse, she's a communist. Now, we can say this is ridiculous. If there ever was a moderate guy, it's Biden. But nonetheless, such statements introduce a certain division, radical division, what I call ideological civil war. And I claim this is 
the tendency today, which I don't praise, but it's a fact, this gradual losing of energy of what we once called tolerant, decent, liberal center, you know, which is me maybe even a much more tragic case than that of United States, France. Look, I'm not a political partisan of Emmanuel Macron, yeah. but he tried to play a certain correct, efficiently, technocratic, right. decent game, and he's more and more hatred. I think the true tragedy was in France. You remember yellow vests. Right. Protests. Yep. What was so tragic is that they expressed a certain discontent, but in contrast to the United States, where Trump and partially democratic socialists yeah. captured yeah. part of this discontent, in France it didn't work. The yellow vests were, were not able to... Uh, to transport, transfer exactly. their vision into an active political project. I'm here to avoid a misunderstanding, just important. I'm not saying you, we have to invent new forum which will give real expression to the people. No, the pe these people's spontaneous rebellions and so on, they are yeah. inconsistent, they are always dangerous and so on and so on. So I think, uh, I don't have a clear way out. I just think that a certain gap is appearing between, let's call it spontaneous self-perception ideology mm -hmm. of ordinary people, and that uh, Trump was much more adept in, yeah. in yeah. catching this, in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in on the, the opposite side, here I stick to my old uh, analysis, Bernie Sanders did this. Bernie Sanders was very intelligent and bright. You know, what was his formula? Drop that Biden obsession, we have to get centrist uh, voters. No, uh, Bernie said our aim should be to get those who otherwise would have voted for Trump, this populist discontent. He is almost, I know nonsense of this, Trump of the left. So basically, I still cling to my right. basic opinion that Trump is not a simple mistake. He expresses a certain tendency, which is of uh, disintegration of liberal democracy. And yep. I yep. think in the long term, this is the direction the world is saying. And then as an old leftist, I think the only hope is a radicalization of liberal democracy through reasonable radical left. Right. I, I think they exist. But if we look the biggest, but, but sorry, I talk too much, please. If we look at some of the stats in terms of the states that have currently, where Biden have either been trailing or have been performing less well, even relative to Hillary Clinton, it's largely states where basically Trump's been painting him as a leftist, as a pro-redistribution socialist, yeah. uh, harking back to the fears of the Latino vote and the Latino bloc, especially in Florida, but also the, the Southeast in general about, you know, the, the dictatorship of their own country. Yeah. And rightly or wrongly, you know, I, I don't necessarily make a value judgment about communism here. But it does strike me that if we're talking about galvanizing these folks, 
Bernie Sanders would only alienate and disillusion even more of them simply because he's seen as a left-wing figure. He's seen as economically non-credible and even more statist and allegedly a Marxist than Biden. Now, these are perceptions. I'm not saying this is a valid characterization, but I would just question the empirical uh, efficacy of trying to push the party further to the populist left, further to the pro-redistribution side. What do you make of that claim? Uh, first, uh, these, are, these are many problems uh, you implied. First, uh, if you know, that's the, our political tragedy. Always I hear this uh, Sanders, radical leftist, but this is a sad sign of where we are today. If you go half a century or a little bit more, even back to the golden era of European social democracy, not just Sweden, but also France, Germany, Willy Brandt, and so on, you can see that uh, uh, Bernie Sanders is basically a reasonable version of social European social democracy, much less radical, not only than Olaf Palme, Sweden was, but that even Harold Wilson was, and so on. So this reflects a global change of our political space, but this is why we should learn, I agree with you, if if we make a sudden radical leftist turn, we alienate many votes. But on the other hand, It's not as simple as that. Let's take the lesson of Trump himself. He was doing on the opposite pole precisely this. No compromises with liberal center, shocking people again and again, not only with his personal tasteless style. So you know what would be my proposal to the left? You will laugh at it. But you know where it worked triumphantly? For example, in Bolivia, you know Lucho Arce, I know him, we are half friends, the one who now took over, you know how he designates himself, technocratic socialist. He knows very well about real economy. Bolivia is such a thorn in the eyes of the establishment, because there you had a relatively radical left in power, but they didn't become another Venezuela or Cuba, they didn't screw it up. But Venezuela and Cuba screwed it up, right? Like Venezuela did screw it up. Listen, uh, you know, and many leftists, even now leftists hate me, you know, when Fidel Castro died, you know what tasteless joke I made in my text? I said they are so proud of their economic hardships. When I visited Cuba, they showed me the ruined buildings and so on, and they say, you see, we are ready to suffer but we are authentic. We will not be the end. Since I can call vaguely, in psychonetic term, this suffering castration, no, being deprived of something sometime, I said, and it didn't pass well in Cuba, no wonder your leader is called Fidel Castro. Fidelity <laughs> to castration. You know, it loudly, and I right. was sympathetic to Cuba, you know, because, my God, don't you hate those leftists who say we will remain faithful to our vision even if people starve and yep. so on? No, I have a certain respect for ordinary people. I was yep. never impressed by this oh, one million people protested on Tahrir Square, whatever, on the street. Don't you think that ordinary people have 
the right to ask this simple question. Okay, big, big empathic event, enthusiasm, but the true measure of a social upheaval is the day later. How do ordinary people feel the difference? And in Bolivia, they did. Life got really, in the everyday life, yeah. better there. So I am not for some crazy radical left, and even Bernie, Maybe sometimes he was rhetorically too radical. But you know who is my bright hope? But he is too young still. Uh, 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 Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Right. Already when Trump, uh, sorry, by, uh, Bernie Sanders was doing his big stuff, she was warning, wait a minute, we are talking about a lot of things now. Uh, universal, uh, universal health care, blah, blah, blah. Yes. It's not as simple as that. And I think there is a chance of this today. You know why? Now I come to my last point, but you can interrupt me, ask me. Yeah. Because when I'm talking about a leftist turn, I'm not talking about some illusionary new communist party yeah. and so on. I'm talking about what the COVID pandemic is forcing us to do. Exactly. I read commentary in financial times a month ago, which said, are we aware that now uh, Boris Johnson is doing things like partially nationalizing railways? Right. And where if a leftist were to propose this a year ago, he would have dismissed as a leftist. Can I interrupt you here, actually? Because yeah. I, yeah. I think that's a very interesting point. But the problem with a lot of the proposals or describing what Bojo is doing or, you know, what's being done in Europe as leftists, is I think that mistakes basically increased state presence in adapting to or adapting within neoliberal framework. CF right now, the increase of welfare and benefits still within a neoliberal framework of conditionalizing it upon work, and also how the offering of unconditional welfare support by Rishi Sunak, again, conditional upon so-called contribution and work, and again, the nationalization partially of infrastructure, even though there's a lot of pushback and resistance, even from within the Tories, that's not necessarily left-wing socialism or communism. That's just basically the neoliberal bourgeoisie establishment adapting to ensure that they can preserve their own survival. Whereas if we're genuinely talking about what sort of Mark Fisher's idea of non-capitalist realism or communist realism, you don't really see that kind of communist realism and puritanism in the current policies, even from the Tories. But instead, it's just a capitalistic establishment, as you said, co-opting left-wing rhetoric, co-opting left-wing strategies to uh, legitimize their own right-wing order. Here I stick, I know, I often hear this argument. Yeah. It's a common one. But I, I stick to my analysis for a very paradoxical reason, because I'm more of, an, of a pessimist. Okay. That is to say, when people say this, they still conceive the pandemic as an event which will last for maybe a year, and then during this time, of yeah. course, as in World War II, uh, uh, those in power establishment, bourgeoisie, makes a compromise. But I think this will simply go on. Listen, that's why Europe makes me so sad. Yeah. After March, April, when it got a little bit better in during the summer, Europe thought, okay, we survive it, now we can relax a little bit. It was, I totally agree with you, that they just made small concessions to get through it. But my analysis is, unfortunately, 
we will never maybe get simply through it. We have now second wave. We have other threats. Are you aware, for example, I'm focused on that. It's a nightmare. Even Putin admitted it. What is happening in northern Siberia? Uh, 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 that uh, methanol, whatever, gas is exploding, temperature rising on yeah. northern Siberian Arctic coast. This summer, temperatures rise over 30 degrees Celsius and so on. So yeah. I think that we are approaching a new era of permanent disturbances. Okay. And that's why I think that although it is, as you said, intended from the side of those in power as just short period of compromises, then we will return to normal. That simply, <coughs> sorry, we will never return to normal. And that's for me the tragedy of Europe now. They thought the worst is over in summer. Yeah. Let's return to open market. And we are where we are right. now. I think so where I, I want to push, where I would dispute your pessimism, though, yes, Professor, yes. is if you look at Asia, a lot of Asian countries have largely returned to normal. So there's a, a talk of travel bubbles, there's talk of resuming travel, and that the case numbers in a lot of these countries have been kept to a very, very low single-digit numbers, and I speak from first-hand experience coming from a city, you know, uh, in, in, in my country. And in that sense, it strikes me that maybe it's not the case that the fates of countries or the fates of the world must necessarily be a new normal of instability and disturbance per COVID. I think there are other crises that are going to inevitably crop up. But I think yeah. on the issue of COVID, we, we might want to compartmentalize COVID from these other issues because otherwise we'd be just homogenizing them and creating an essentialization of discourses of crises. I agree with you. And it's a very interesting point. Why East Asia is doing better. First, I reject this simple culturalist approach yes. because yes. East Asians are more homogenized, discipline, sense of social solidarity. Well, sorry, it, it holds also for New Zealand and Australia. Yeah. No, there is something exactly. there, but, but, and I know all this, but what I think is that I agree with you, we shouldn't fall into this paranoia COVID is just part of a global catastrophe. But nonetheless, it's clear that COVID crisis is also somehow linked with ecological problems, not yeah. directly, but at least with uh, our entire mode of production. Mm -hmm. I would here uh, rehabilitate what some people like uh, Kohei Saito, the Japanese who works yes. in Germany, called uh, eco-socialism, not in mm. any ideal sense of celebrating nature, but he demonstrates that Marx in his last years was very attentive to what he called Stoffwechsel, uh, uh, exchange of stuff, material exchange in social reproduction. And here we are approaching stronger and stronger disturbances. And you know where I see the real trouble? Just allow me to tell this. Uh, mm. For example, how... Nature remains impenetrable. We don't know what will happen. Do you remember uh, how glad we were in the first lockdown? 
Yeah. March, April, when we saw all those satellites picture, oh, the dark uh, gray clouds disappeared, the air is much better. But as some intelligent uh, meteorologist warned, this is why the typhoons there were so strong, you know. You do something, a partial good measure, like diminishing air pollution, yep. but you know, nature can be already adapted to that level of pollution. Exactly. So if you simply diminish just that, you never know what you will trigger. So in a more global sense, I nonetheless think that we should be... Uh, uh, yes, we should focus on single struggles. I agree with you. COVID is COVID. Or Julian Assange, his greatness of WikiLeaks yeah. is not that, and I appreciate this with him, he doesn't fight for some general uh, 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 general social change. He's focused yeah. on yeah. a certain typical problem. How? State controls us. Uh, high crucial information, how yeah. Google, Google is connected with state apparatuses, and so on and so on. Yeah. But nonetheless, I claim these fights are interconnected. Effects right, on yeah. COVID are uh, racist also, and I agree with the French guy, Bruno Latour, who said that COVID is just a dress rehearsal for future uh, ecological problems to rise to come. So in the long term, yes, I wish all the best yeah. to, to China and don't forget Taiwan. You know, all people praise yeah. China, but the true triumph is Taiwan. You know. So there obviously is something wrong with the type of Western individualism we were used to. That's, for me, the tragedy of France, as I already said. Look at Macron. You may not like him, but he tried to be, he is, for me, Macron, at this moment, maybe with Merkel, the European left liberal establishment at its best. But there is an incredible gap between French state apparatus and yeah. experience of people. In France, they have this tradition, which for me is not necessarily even leftist, that yeah. when the state orders something, it's bad. Sorry, I make it nervous. Where is your domina aspect? Beat me, stop me. Okay, <laughs> all right. So on a, on a question of dominatrix and dominion, and I want to just segue into the second half of our discussion about philosophy because I'm also formally trained more as a philosopher than a political scientist. But May I ask you, which, so that I can locate you in my Stalinist cognitive yeah. map, so, where are you in philosophy? Uh, I'm interested in technically analytical political philosophy, although recently I've uh, ended up in a bizarre territory where Arendt intersects Raymond Goyce and also intersects basically Foucault in terms of deconstructing the practice of politics. So I see my role as a theorist, also as an activist, and also as a political figure intrinsically there. And, and indeed, mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you a question, really, because in a Please. recent interview responding to the backlash you received over your critique of Me Too, you said, sexuality is a complex domain with implied meanings and ambiguities, and you cannot translate it into rules. You then term Me Too a new seduction under the spell of a certain kind of legalism. Now, I definitely get where you're coming from, Professor, and I think that leads into or blends into what you talked about just then about the big state and also the overarching tendency to capture everything under the panopticon of judgment uh, by society at large. Yeah. But isn't this argument template 
that something or some ex, such as the family or love or relationship, that it should be beyond regulation. Isn't this the very precise argument template that's been wielded by the powerful, like men, like those who are cis-heterosexual, to basically justify historically violent or oppressive practices like assault or the uh, age androcentric and asymmetrical distribution of domestic labor. So that's my question there. No, I'm here uh, truly radically uh, feminist. I okay. just uh, want to, this is what is my emphasis, at abstract philosophical level and at the level of concrete practices. Yeah. Don't underestimate the power of what uh, an American leftist feminist, Nancy Fraser, called yes. uh, corporate, corporate neoliberal feminism. How American feminism has also its dark side. That's one thing. And it's yeah. even often used, I so often detected in the United yeah. States, the class bias of feminism. They don't yeah. say it. But when they criticize brutal male violence, they really mean uh, Hispanics and so on, you know, those deemed lower. But my basic philosophical point mm. is that, of course, certain basic things should be regulated. But uh, isn't it that sexuality, and if we learned anything from yeah. Freud, yeah. it is this, is in itself an ambiguous not ambiguous is not a good word, but yeah. this kind of a unclear, uh, unclear phenomenon where you never know what something means. You, not you, you are not English, but isn't, for example, the something in British character which lends itself to arrogant brutality, which remains very polite at a superficial level, but it can be very aggressive. On the other hand, I think that a true friendship always involves what may appear even a racist joke, but it can work as a level of solidarity. So what I'm saying is that what uh, Me Too people, for example, when they say no means no or mutual consent, you know, they even have, I think, in New South Wales, in Australia, nobody accepted it, but they passed a legal regulation that somehow the consent of both partners, if they want to make love, should be registered by signing a paper, taking a short video clip, we both want to do it. But mm-hmm. are they afraid that there is a certain part, aspect of erotic tension mm-hmm. where... Doing like this ruins everything. There are women who want to do it, but for whom saying explicitly yes in this sense is humiliating. The last thing, there are, uh, you know, when when you say there can be masochism, but consensual. No, part of the masochist enjoyment is precisely that you play it being non-consensual. Now right. I'm here, of course, for relations and so on and so on. I'm just yeah. saying that sexuality is in itself a matter of ambiguities, rejection can function like that. And that, so don't go fa- too far with explicit regulations. Because wanna, in uh, this way, you can open yeah. up a way even for even a worse 
exploitation. Let me tell you a, an example that I give in one of my yeah. books. You know, one of the big politically correct advices, and I basically agree, is that it's not that you once say yes and then the other guy can do whatever he she wants with you. At every point, you have the right to withdraw. No? Mm. But you know, I, I know many, I know men and uh-huh. women who use this rule to further humiliate the partner. Can you imagine a woman or a man, let's take a man, who excites a woman and then on the verge of penetrating him says, sorry, I'm not in the mood, I withdraw. Can you imagine a a more horrible uh, humiliation? That's my my problem, that sexuality is full of masochist moments, ambiguities, and so on. Uh, The basic formula of Freud's sexuality is perversion. Perversion means that you enjoy the displeasure itself. Is the best Professor, isn't the best form of masochism, though, the ability to withhold and the ability to control precisely and stipulate precisely the boundaries of where sex lies? Because that is, in accordance with the Stoics, right, the most excruciating thing in life is to be able to carry out onanism and to rein yourself in. So surely the ability to transform sex into something that is controlled within the realm of consent, that is masochism to the highest levels and of the highest extent. And I guess that is where I'd push back with two further responses as well. Firstly, that you mentioned Nancy Fraser just there. Nancy is quite big on recognition politics, drawing upon Charles Taylor. But one of yeah. the arguments that Nancy says is you want people to be recognized as autonomous agents to partake in the market, but also to partake in a private domain, which is where she takes issue with Axel Honneth. And I think that's also where she says, if I don't recognize others' consent or autonomy, then that Failure to recognize them is akin to a form of symbolic violence and erasure of them. And that is why prudentially, on one hand, you might have a risk of crushing individuals' ability to derive pleasure from sex. But on the other hand, you have the possibility of infringing upon the most sacrosanct moments and the, the most sacrosanct parts of individuals' bodies, i.e. the product of sexual assault, of rape and other forms of violence. So surely prudentially, doesn't the benefit of doubt less rest with preventing the latter form of violence from happening because it's so much more visceral and intimate than the former form. So I think that's my rejoinder against your very, very sound and interesting argument there. Yeah, but still, I, I, I claim that sexuality is such a mess that uh, even, for example, uh, the topic of recognition, it's very difficult to say how to transpose it into sexuality. I know men and women who are, even women, feminists, very active, and they say it's a beautiful statement. They say, I have enough of recognition in my feminist struggles and so on. But when, I will not use the dirty word, when I want to get F, F, three points ED, I want to be objectivized. None of that, I love you, I respect you. I want to be an object. I want to see men, the men, my partner, just fully enjoying me. That's what I like. I think this is... This is immanent to sexuality. And the moment you want to regulate this, that's another feminist, I don't know which one, who very nicely pointed out. If you move in this direction of consent, even regulated consent, uh, in the sense that you, which in a way it's 
uh, reasonable. In uh, 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 Julian Assange showed show me this. You know that in they are already making experiment with this in uh, in Sweden. That the idea is before you make love with a new partner, each of you fills out a form, name, age, what illnesses you have, and what are your limits. For example, no anal intercourse, I don't know what, and so on, and so on. What I'm saying is that don't we approach in this way the idea that what in sadomasochism is called a masochist contract, is the ultimate form of sexuality. Because the whole pleasure, I love masochism, although I don't practice it, because it's for me the ultimate bureaucratization of sex, you know. Some masochists admitted to me, the act itself, then it's almost irrelevant. The pleasure is to fill in the form. We do this, you can do this, you can put your finger there, yes. Professor, could I interrupt you there? Because I think that's a very fair point. But I just want to say, because I think Laura Mulvey's argument is something that we've also read. And I think Laura Mulvey basically argues exactly what you talked about right there. But the trouble here is in real life, the reality here is sex is often wielded by men to borrow the words of Jermaine Greer as an instrument, as a site of reproducing and manifesting their own desires with no regard to the identities and needs and interests of the women. And I think sure, that's I totally great. agree. My God, not all women my... agree, right? Not, not all yes. women agree. No, 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 not only agree. agree. I even gave examples as a Lacanian. Yeah. Lac Lacan says somewhere, and this is for me a beautiful uh, feminist statement, that in a the majority, majority of cases of a, yeah. of a normal, under quotation mark, straight heterosexual relationship, what man is doing with a woman is basically masturbation with a real partner. Now, you just use woman as a kind of a plastic dildo, but real life a prop to realize, mm. to state your fantasy. You don't relate to woman as an actual other. You mm. use woman as a prop to realize your fantasy. That's the typical, I claim, male structure. And very rarely, and that's why I'm here an old romantic and I'm for love. Because right I there. think love, love, and I believe in passionate love, love doesn't have the structure of Masturbation with a, masturbating with a real partner. In love, you feel, as it were, the abyss of the other. And for me, this was always so obvious. Listen, if you just realize your fantasies, you are with a partner, okay, you do it, you enjoy actualizing your fantasy. But love, for me, means that, let's say, I will not be distasteful, but open, you are in the middle of sex, you hold your partner in your hand, all the trembling. For me, it's so, if you are in love, it's something so beautiful because it's not just sexually attractive body there. It's, but this body is my love. You, for me, true love is you almost cannot believe what a beautiful thing is happening. That this person whom I don't even know, she or he is here ready to give herself to me. This is metaphysics. For me, love is not something that supplements sex. Love 
is sex at its most intensive. Only that then, in this case, love becomes truly heterosexual. And Lacan here is very clear. He praises heterosexuality, but you know what he adds? That lesbians are maybe the only true heterosexuals. That male structure is of love, even for a woman, is homosexual in the sense you use your partner as a prop for basically enjoying your fantasies. So this is. So I try to. You see what I try to do? Okay. Uh, unite the most radical feminism and so on with with uh, complicating things and breaking out of this politically correct masochist or sadomasochist contract. I, the I whole of, you, isn't isn't that that even if you have many of my masochist friends told me that the pleasure of masochist contract. It's not only that it's a contract, but there is always an unwritten dimension of how each partner is expected to violate the contract a little bit, but not in an aggressive way. Not, I will beat you more, but in a way of, oh my God, it's the most beautiful part how you violated their contract. I think your conception, <laughs> of, your conception of relationship is really interesting, but my worry here is, don't you yes. think this is your conception but a lot of folks may not see sex as that engagement with the abyss or engagement with that phallogocentric sort of yeah. construct that is Lacanian, right? Because some folks might see sex as a very different thing, as a form of exchange in the most intimate manner without that dominion, without that form of mutual masturbation. And I don't know if we could reasonably say that that's wrong or that our conception of sex is correct. And I think that's a benefit of doubt or that epistemic uncertainty is what I'm quite worried about. Okay, I agree with you, but I, I draw a maybe too romantic radical conclusion. I'm yeah. basically an old, if this is possible, traditional romantic, but feminist romantic. What yeah. I'm just claiming is that yes, in majority of cases, it's like this, but that's why I am an elitist here, not mm. elitist in the sense of intellectual elite. It happens to everybody. I just yeah. say, following my friend Alain Badiou, that true, yeah. authentic love is rare. It's not something that happens all the time, but when it yeah. happens, you know it, and it's maybe the most difficult thing that can happen to you. Can I just ask you, though, on that note, would you take the blue pill or the red pill? You know what's the problem? I've written about it. That unfortunately today, the term red pill, which means I think I'm ready to take the truth. No? Okay. Yeah. The term the red pill was now appropriated by COVID deniers, you know. Uh, they claim uh, the true the true ideological dream yeah. is that this this reality, everyday reality is a is 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 a, a fake, and that there are some secret mechanisms and so on, paranoia theories. I am of, or, which is why I think the point is not simply to confront the truth. If you just play this game, then you are in this choice between, on the one hand, COVID deniers, even if not radical deniers, there can be also progressive COVID deniers, like yeah. Giorgio Agamben, who claims that uh, uh, it's exaggerated COVID and authorities just use it to establish the 
perfect control, or what I call this uh, screen new deal. We should accept to be totally controlled, regulated. We should leave each in. We should accept each in our bubble. But I think that first, I never make. This is the philosophical aspect. Yeah. I never make fun of those who are COVID deniers. You know, for mm. with COVID, with the new rules of. Uh, isolation, uh, social distancing, quarantine. Yeah. In some sense, our humanity, the way we understood it now, is falling apart. No wonder that some people everywhere, and they are not crazy right-wing paranoia, claim, sorry, but to take distance from others, to wear a, a mask all the time, yeah. then I'm like a dog with the muzzle. I'm no longer human. And that's what I, it's obscene to say like, but find stimulating in COVID. It raises, it confronts us with fundamental questions. Mm. What is being human? For example, I read some ordinary American people who oppose wearing masks. And their argument is not, this is a communist Chinese or a big corporation plot. They say, obeying all these rules Quarantine rules, I deprived of my basic freedom and dignity. I think as a philosophers, the first thing we should do here, I hope you will agree, is just to look more closely at the things. For example, yeah. all this complaint, we, we are now more isolated. We are not, we are maybe bodily more isolated. But are you aware that socially, in a situation of in a situation of quarantine and bodily distancing. Yeah. We are through digital media, through total control by the state, whereas we are more socialized, more open to society, more than ever. What exactly. I miss under COVID conditions, pandemic, what I miss is not more society, blah, blah, but being authentically alone. So it's much more paradoxically, you know. You are not alone. You are alone means... A, a, at least for us, eight, ten hours a day, you you are connected, you you are more connected than ever. You follow all the news and so on and so on. I want I am I the most annoying part again for me of the pandemic in my daily life is not being able to be really alone. So I agree, just to conclude and leave with your point, which is that uh, there is a certain what I cannot but call ontological catastrophe at work in our COVID in the sense that don't underestimate this how we are if I may use naively this term uh, this term we are compelled to act unnaturally it's our not in the sense of eternal nature but our Customs, for when we remember, you meet others, you embrace them, you talk with them, and so on and so on. Now, what to do here? Unfortunately, I took my side here. I am think we should accept this challenge and yes. learn yes. to behave unnaturally. 
And as we near, we're near, we nearly at the end of our conversation, Professor. But I really but you want can to add a minute or two. You no, 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 I don't want to add for sexual undertones. No, no, I, I, I so much, You I, excited I, me now. Don't give me coitus interruptus. I, I, <laughs> but you I know what's my communist rule? When we talk about the progress of humanity, yep. there are no limits in vulgarity. And It's are you okay if we therefore? Because I want to ask you two questions that I've been Please. burning at the bottom of my heart. The first one is just, what on earth motivated you to run for the presidency way back? And, and if you were given the choice, would you prefer to be a successful politician or an unsuccessful philosopher? Like, because you're a, a pretty... Uh, here I have my old, but it's true, shocking answer to you. Okay. What motivated me, I, I'm not now saying this after the effect. Yeah. I didn't run for presidency in the sense of being the president. Presidency was a collective body of four people. I ended up the fifth because I did practically nothing as electoral campaign. But it was, I succeeded in something else. Very modest. Every liberal would agree with me. At that point, when socialism or communism was disintegrating, there were two main political options. Yeah. Either ex-communists, in the new mask, democratic socialists, whatever, or nationalist conservatives. And the struggle of my friends was to keep the space open, pluralistic, for feminism, yeah. human rights, more justice. And uh, I was identified at that point as, li as liberal, but in Slovenia and all of Yugoslavia, liberal simply meant, yes, uh, a dissident against the communist regime, but also against the new nationalism. And we succeeded in this. Now, unfortunately, but this is 30 years later, right wing is in power. But till now, Slovenia was the big exception. This relatively moderate left center predominated. And when you ask me the question, now I will tell you something horrible for which I will be yeah. linked again. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I was offered ministerial posts and so on. Not that I was something big, but, you know, Slovenia is, as the most beloved president in the world, Trump, said, shithole of a country. So it's a small country. We knew each other. Everybody knew each other. So, okay, they wanted to offer me Ministry of Culture or Education. You know what was my spontaneous reaction? Yes. With that, only two things interest me. Interior ministry or even better, chief of the secret police. I, oh, wow. Okay. But no, it's not my secret Stalinism. You know what must be challenge? Can you do it respecting human rights, but nonetheless efficiently? You know, that's a big challenge. Do you know that even Gandhi wrote a very interesting text, the Gandhi I like on this, How should a new democratic India organize secret service? Yes. Fine. That was the challenge. So, but no, 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 I am an old-fashioned theorist. F off with politics, big politics, it's basically vulgar. I even have a theory, maybe with some exceptions, but basically you have to be stupid in a certain way to be a good politician that are very and uh, you know writing a new fat book yeah. on Hegel is 
what is absolutely more for me. I'm very much a traditional metaphysician. Gotcha. And I want to ask the second you question. Oh, the you second said you question. Have two. Yeah, well, I, I was going to ask you just, um, well, I, I think I'll just integrate the follow up into this last question, really. Uh, and that's okay. to say, let's loop back to Mr. Donald Trump. Now, I know the Slovenian PM uh, was the first leader to congratulate and yeah. also uh, support Trump on. Of Orban, he's what I call the new European axis of evil. I see. Uh, uh, Slovenia, uh, 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 a little bit, not really Czech Republic, Poland, yeah. some Latvian states, Hungary, of course. He's fully part of that. And you know where he is personally very close to Trump? He has this Trump's Stalinist attitudes. Yeah. You don't have Trump and then his moderate liberal opponents. If you're against yeah. Trump, you are socialist communist and so on. Yes. So for Jan Sharoprom, minister, those who oppose him are part of the deep state of ex-communists who still mm. really dominate the life. Right. It's a very fanatical position like Trump's, where even if you are in power, you still behave like yeah. opposition. So and I, want, uh, yeah. I want to just ask you, Professor, for the final question today, then, if you had, say, the opportunity to say unfiltered, uncensored, one minute of time or 30 seconds you would spend with Donald Trump right now, what would you say to him if he were in the same room as you and just you two? I would try to avoid it because uh, I really, first, I didn't repeat my madness four years ago. Now I used in some text this tasteless metaphor and I say, you know, although voting for Biden is like asking a vampire yes. to eat some garlic, but do it. <laughs> Because you know what? The, the stakes are simply too high. In right. ecology, COVID, global warming, all that. I mean, I agree here with my arch enemy, Chomsky. I mean, you know, stakes <laughs> are simply too high. What is, in a way, decided in this vote is maybe even the fate of, uh, it's maybe even the fate of, humanity. But Trump is an extremely vulgar guy. So the only thing that comes to my mind, you know, when Trump uh, proposed through, was it Jared Kushner did it for him, that yeah. this plan, no? And uh, you remember Trump used an expression which was very weird. He wanted to say, I asked Jared to give me a quick overview of Middle East situation, no? And you know what Trump said? I asked Jared to give me a quickie on, no? <laughs> and you know what for me the word quickie means? So my answer would have been, sorry, but I have many sexual fantasies and passionate, but Jared Kushner giving Trump a quickie is not my favorite sexual fantasy, you know? So I'm not really interested in Trump. I, I'm here a hardline Stalinist in a good sense. If somebody like Trump will come to me, do you want to tell me how I screwed Melania or whoever? I'm not interested in it. He is not, you give too much to him. You know, we should worry about Trump, what he is doing and so on. But that's a big thing. Don't get fascinated by Trump. People who fascinate me is uh, 
charming people, but at the same time, realists. Who? No, and I don't think another thing I have here. This is what psychoanalysis taught me. Don't you agree? Yeah. I'm embarrassed when French, or not even French, confide in me and try to st- start to tell me their sexual secrets and so on. I know if I look deep into you and me, you will discover probably some dirty, nasty fantasies, disgusting stuff. I believe in masks, not in COVID masks, but I believe in common decency, which is why I agree with uh, Angela Nagle that in a strange reversal of half a century ago, student rebellion, today, the new populist right is openly vulgar, shocking us again and again. And we should do what Bernie did, very important. He got the fact that today the left should act as the voice of moral majority. What I always repeat against those who criticize postmodernism is, can you imagine a more relativist postmodern president than Donald Trump? He is full of postmodern obscenity, transgression. It's the time for us leftists to speak for ordinary people, common decency, and so on. And, well, I hope I certainly count amongst the uh, the realists that you uh, would fancy speaking to over Trump instead. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay, I will tell you something to conclude with a joke. I'm okay. not sure where you really stand politically. So maybe when we, the people, the Stalinists, take over, you will, of course, unfortunately, you will have to go to Gulag. Okay, I can oh, promise no. you something. Since I consider myself your friend, from my Moscow Central Bureau, I will call the Gulag administration and, you know, on Sunday, when it's the best meal in Gulag, you get some soup with rotten fish fish heads and so on. As a sign of my friendship, you will get on Sunday two portions of that soup. Aren't you glad? I'll be sure to post on my Instagram, Professor. But thank you yeah. so, so much, Professor, for no. joining us today. It was an absolute I'm grateful to you. I'm sad we can repeat it whenever you want to go more into philosophy. Because just this to conclude, don't you really agree that it's, they are totally wrong who think now it's a medical crisis, maybe economic. It's not time for philosophy. No, as debates point out, what does it mean to wear a mask to socially distance? Now, this struggle now is at the same time struggle for our, what I cannot but call everyday philosophy. Each of us has decided what does it mean to be free, dignified human being, to redefine ourselves. It's now the time of philosophy is coming. Thank you so, so much for your time, Professor. And, and I'm really honor, grateful to you. Don't talk with this honor. You know, now you will get the vulgar thing you deserve. Okay. If you well, call I really me professor like and say you are an honor, it was an honor, my answer is, what did I do to you? Did I rape your mother in public or what so that you humiliate me so much? You know, I guess we had intellectual... you are Brian. Hope that in contrast to Brian Jones of Rolling Stones, you will live a little bit longer. I hope so, too. And so, please, I enjoyed it 
very much. But just tell me, what will happen now in 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 uh, in Oxford? Is the uh, or okay? University will be open, but are students there or it's all Zoom? Well, it's currently all Zoom, but with uh, some in-person teaching for the undergraduates. So uh, if you would like to come and join us and teach at Oxford, uh, I, I would love to see you there in Oxford. No, I would, I, would, I would love to just, I am now, you know what's my problem? No, I'm an extremely risky uh, 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 case. I have strong diabetes. I have some heart palpitations. I have high pressure and weak. People already made work with all my nervous gestures, no? People just told me, if you want to warn other people how to avoid COVID, no? So me just talking with my gestures, and that's the model of what not to do, you know? But when, and I hope it will be possible, with, I will come with pleasure. Thank you Thanks so very much. much. And thank you all very much for joining us from afar for the Oxford Political Reviews interview with the one and only Slavoj Zizek.